they were all deep fakes and they convinced this employee to hand over $25 million. Welcome to Beyond Unstoppable, the podcast that explores the intersection of biology, psychology, and technology. Here is your host, Ben Angel. In a world brimming with technological marvels and ethical quandaries, where does humanity draw the line in the AI sand? Today, we grapple with the pressing issues, the race with tech giants, the dawn of self-driving cars, and the looming shadow of job loss due to AI innovations that are rapidly accelerating. To guide us is Jonathan Campos, Chief Technology Officer and VP of Engineering at Alto, whose genius is steering a new course in the rideshare industry. Together, we'll dissect Alto's David versus Goliath battle, forecast self-driving car challenges, and navigate the moral maze of AI. Don't miss Jonathan's take on paving the ethical road ahead in tech. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review. Your support means the world to us and helps us reach more listeners who are ready to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Ben Angel's new book, The Wolf is at the Door, How to Survive and Thrive in an AI-Driven World, presented by Entrepreneur. Get an exclusive sneak peek and order at thewolfofai.co. Jonathan, tell us about Alto, and I know I'm pronouncing that with an Australian accent, so please feel free to correct me. <laughs> tell us about Alto. So it's a ride-sharing company, and you're taking on the giants like Uber and Lyft. What's that like? From day one, seemingly impossible, but very possible. So Alto is very similar to like an Uber and Lyft. That's what people quickly associate us with. But where we're different is... We own all the cars and all the drivers are employees. This means that we actually spend our, you know, spend a lot of our time focusing on the experience that our customers have. Every time you get in a car, it's going to smell the same. The drivers are going to greet you the same. You're going to be taken care of. And that experience is very curated to make sure that it's the same every single time. The safety, consistency that you receive in Alto is you know, unmatched. We are able to do this again because drivers are employees. We can actually train them to do this. When Alto first started, I had an extremely small development team. I mean, it literally started with me as the first developer and built, building from there. We didn't have customers that said, oh, you're, you're tiny. We're going to forgive the fact that you can only do 1% of what Uber and Lyft can do. From day one, they said, Uber and Lyft can do this, we expect this. Yeah. And it has to be exactly the same. What's great is I have a ton of respect for the giants that have come before us. And what's great is we're able to look at what they've done and some experiments that over the years they may have done and just kind of they turned off because it, it wasn't working. We can kind of watch back their history and take those learnings. And we continue to build stuff that makes Alto unique but we don't have to have quite as many stumbling blocks as they had. What is the driving force behind what you do? So for entrepreneurs listening to this, you've taken on some major companies. What does that mindset even begin to look like in those early days? From the early days up until now, like we've, we've continued to say that the big thing for us is we want to make a profitable ride-hailing company that can also take care of drivers. That is a big sentence right there with a lot of moving pieces. We're looking at Uber and Lyft and other companies that have been around for years and are struggling to make profits, are struggling to be profitable. We know that there's tools and technology, but also culture and operations 
that's built around a company to make this happen. Being able to say that you're a profitable company or profitable in certain areas, like that's that's a big thing to be able to claim, especially in the ride hailing space in, in a very capital intensive business such as Alto. What's the biggest challenge that you've faced? The biggest challenge by far is doing that supply and demand balancing and then also doing that while continuing to grow the business. We integrate really advanced algorithms. We integrate machine learning. We integrate artificial intelligence into all the pieces that we do so that way us as a small operating company can run thousands of cars out there in the world at any given time while, while staying in that middle ground of supply and demand and and all of that to be profitable. It's a lot of moving pieces. What's your take on driverless cars? What do you see for the future? Researching my book in the last year, obviously there are cases of cars not doing what they're meant to. How how do you communicate if this is something that you eventually move into in the future, first of all, but how do you communicate the risks and the safety and that people are going to be able to go, all right, I trust getting into a driverless car. Long joked internally that we are a human-driven autonomous fleet. The, you know, the reason we say that is because where our competitors use gamification and try to incentivize drivers to go here and go there, and they spend a lot of time and effort to do that, we actually plan everything that a driver does from beginning to end. As soon as you get on your shift, we have a plan for everything, where you're going to be going, where you're going to stage, when you're going to take a break, every bit, bit, bit and piece. And we really plan everything. We, we did this from the beginning because we wanted to make it where when an autonomous car comes in, we were ready. And we could just put an autonomous car into our fleet and have the entire plan and the entire execution of their entire shift you know, ready to go. My thought, my takes on autonomous driving and is I'm very positive about it. It's still many years in the future. And sadly, this is going, this is one of those technologies that just has a very, very long tail on it. We can get through most of the use cases fairly easily, but it's all of those very unique cases where, yes, it may be overall safer, but in those u- unique cases where a human would have made a logical decision that a car just, you know, a, a programmed car just can't. It's it's making as best decisions as it, as it could, but without that little bit of that human spark and logic, it's hard for it to make that final decision. As as a absolutely horrible example, just think about what happened with the, the cruise driving incident, dragging a human. It's it wasn't initially Cruz's fault. It was a cyclist that got into a really bad spot. But this is where any human would have stopped and jumped out of the car and you know, double-checked mm-hmm. what happened. And in this case, the car was executing its programming and making decisions as best as it could. But it's just one of those cases where you just look and go, okay, as a human, I can't accept this piece. I can't accept this decision. I thought I read something, was it a month or two ago, about them wanting to integrate chat GPT or LLMs into driverless cars. What does that look like? Is the goal that it will improve decision-making? That is the hope. Maybe an easier analogy to look at is 
you know, think of the new generative AI images that are, that are created. When you first started using generative AI, you had to type amazingly complex prompts to get out roughly what you wanted. But as time has gone on, those prompts have become easier and easier, not because all that data isn't needed, but it's because they're using multiple layers of generative AI to take your request for you know, a, a fuzzy bunny and adding on all sorts of other layers to make it what you want and making guesses. So they're adding extra text in between the text that you're, you've actually ad, entered and giving that to the generative AI to finally make the rendered image. In the same way for autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles, they're hoping to use text and, and other tools to get some of that benefits of the generative AI piece to make this decision that, okay, now I feed the car that I have an, an accident just happened. What is the next steps for the car to do? The generative AI and that, that the artificial intelligence piece will hopefully say, stop, not drive 20 feet and, and safely exit, even though that's what the programming would, would do. Uh, this is the same benefit that machine learning has for years been so much better. Us coders, we can only keep adding so many if-then statements to make a decision. AI, hope, the intention is that it makes that leap and says, okay, even though I didn't have an if-then statement to tell me to do this, I know I should do this because it's the next best logical step. With the AI models, so you, you spoke about how they're adding these extra layers to make, hey, let's make a bunny. And I'm not sure if you saw the example of make the bunny and make the bunny angrier, even angrier, and it kept on popping up. But what we've observed since I think December and OpenAI have acknowledged this, that there's a, been a bit of a degradation, like it's becoming lazier. Is that potentially caused by a couple of factors saying they're adding multiple layers? But the other one is that is it now ingesting AI content? Some of the basic research that's been done is says it effectively makes the AI go mad. I, I mean, I think I think you've you've called it out that by adding layer on layer on layer, you now have more removal of again that human spark and that human creativity. And the good and bad part is, is the, the AI might start to learn, oh, this is what people find most interesting. If I, if I use a photorealistic image, I get more thumbs up than if I use a, something, an impressionist view of an angry pink bunny. And so it starts to remove that creativity piece that a human might do because it's trying to do what's generatively uh, and generally more more acceptable. And so again, it just kind of takes away from that uniqueness that makes us us. You've probably seen some, you know, some jokes recently that the internet kind of hit peak last year, like before ChatGPT came out, like when it was kind of last totally human safe or human created. And that was kind of peak. And everything since then is slowly, slowly becoming more augmented with AI in, in a in negative way. I think I saw it was an interview with one of the open AI team, I believe the other day. Recently, they're, they're saying more to be nice to AI, to add a smiley face, to say, hey, before you do this task, take a little break and then complete it. What's your gut instinct with that? Because that feels incredibly weird to me. And 
I, I noticed this mid last year when it wasn't producing the outcomes I wanted, I just started being super overly friendly and all of a sudden the output is insane. Now I'm, I'm not saying we're headed, that's AGI, but what's your gut instinct feel about having to be nice to this thing? I, I mean, I will say maybe because of, you know, you, you unknowingly personify these tools. You know, yes, I sometimes tell my Google assistant, thank you for, you know, something that I did, you know, just because as a human, I try to be polite and I, I, I like to believe I'm mostly a polite person, but that said, I do think it's, it's just wrong. The fact that I, you know, would ask for a pink bunny and it gives me a worse answer unless I sugarcoat my request. That's just, it's, it's silly to me like that. Like these are, these are generative AI hacks that are out there and at some point they just, they just need to go away. Do you think that could go wrong in the future? In what way? In that we have to be nice to something that has so much power or the potential for power. You know, in, in case, you know, the my robot overlords at some point look back <laughs> at this, I'll say we should be nice at all times, you know, to them. But on the other hand, I don't go and say sweet nothings to a hammer before I go hammer and a nail. Like, I want to be able to say, okay, I'm picking this up. I'm going to do this thing. You know, right now, I open up a coding application. I don't, you know, be nice and tell it, hey, take a second, have a cup of coffee, and then we're going to start working today. I open up a program and I I get to work. For businesses and companies right now, what are the, what do you see in AI in terms of where should they be focusing? to grow their companies and deal with these opportunities that are they're hitting every day. I think the right now where we've been limited is the creativity to coming up with with solutions. I think we there is a lot of possible places that AI can be safely inserted. And I say safely on purpose because there's a lot of places it can be inserted right now that may not be safe. But there's a lot of places that could you know would be safe and places that could help improve humans' tasks by by making it where we are just approving what the AI has done, not specifically taking it wholesale. I think that companies would be well served to think creatively and to not try to think, okay, how am I going to totally revamp my entire business on AI? But instead, how am I going to take these 10 little pieces and remove the human from them and make them easier. At Alto, we've we've spent time trying to improve our customer service. And we've done that by adding in more and more AI. So that way we can still serve the same amount of customers, but with fewer humans and also fewer stress on those humans. What about the security risks with artificial intelligence? We saw, I think it was late last year, the Chevy someone convinced the Chevy chatbot to sell a car for a dollar. And obviously it wasn't legally binding or anything like that. But we're also seeing other hackers being able to access the training material that that chatbot was based on through pretty simple prompts. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily coders doing this. They're just being creative. How are companies 
going to really deal with that challenge, especially with the AI chatbots, which I assume by next year, every single company is going to have an AI chatbot. Well, and this is where I think having a human to go in and kind of validate that it's not going crazy and not hallucinating in some negative way is is just vital. I think in customer service as, as a fairly easy conversation piece here, if you've got these chatbots immediately responding to people through email, well, having that human involved to double check the emails and just kind of approving them will help speed up their work without having to write the total email from scratch. However, by having that human involved that can now do more work, we can still kind of do that quality assurance double check to make sure that the chatbot didn't respond and say, congratulations, you get a year of service free and I'm going to enable this right now, click. Like you've still got that like one last quality assurance check. And this is where I think for a long time, humans are going to be involved in that quality assurance check until at some point we get far enough along and then the trust will be earned and we can stop doing that. Do you think humans are going to let their guards down potentially too soon knowing human behavior? We We want that quick win. Hey, just do it for me. It's all good. Oh, easily. Yeah, for sure. Like, and this is where, you know, it's, it's easy to take a pill and, you know, stop worrying about something as opposed to like really doing the work. We're going to start seeing that you know, any an entrepreneur will insert AI and say, oh, okay, this works nine times out of 10. This works 99 times out of 100. This, you know, some, you know, a huge amount of time that's going to work. And you're going to just start taking your hands off pretty quickly. Mm. But that one time out of 10, that one time out of 100, as your customer base starts growing, it goes from being this little really micro problem to, okay, now a thousand customers a day are seeing this, a thousand customers an hour are seeing this. And that could really tank your business depending on how bad the AI is performing. So who should be held responsible if an AI on your behalf signs a contract or takes out a massive loan or even convinces a family member (laughs) to give you money is it big tech or is it the user ultimately i would say it's it's probably the user that's implementing that that ai in this case like the entrepreneur that bases their whole business off of some chatbot that they haven't fully vetted i have a hard time saying it's big tech because Again, you know, I go to, to Lowe's down the street and I buy a hammer and I badly hammer together two boards. I don't go back to Lowe and sit Lowe's and say, that's on you for, you know, the bad hammering job. I say, well, I was wielding the hammer. I did wrong. Would it be on a maybe a smaller company that's deploying those chatbots? That, exactly. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Now, obviously, that changes if you, you know, you use you know, the word big tech, like that changes if big tech has packaged and boxed up and said, this is our product and we we stand behind it. Now they are taking the responsibility because they are handing over a quote unquote completed product. So it's kind of like who whoever packages it up and hands it over, that's the last person that had their hands on it and the person that should be responsible. Because the next phase that in OpenAI, it's been alluded to in the last couple of days of uh, AI agents. So the agents will autonomously do the task from start to finish. 
what's your take on AI agents? Have you been testing anything? Before we continue, Beyond Unstoppable is brought to you by Ben Angel's new book, The Wolf is at the Door. Get your exclusive sneak peek and order your copy at thewolfofai.co. Now back to the show. We we have we have done testing on it. We, it's it's kind of skunk works right now with an Alto. Currently, we like that control and we like the ability to kind of double check. And so, we let the agent go so far. We let the agent make recommendations, but stop at actually taking actions. Are we going to end up with a society that's just clicking approve or decline? That's kind of one of my biggest fears. It's like, okay, we're just going to approve or decline all these decisions without really thinking. I mean, yes and no. I mean, this this is this is kind of where I said earlier. Like, eventually, that trust will be earned, and we'll have less and less places to approve or deny. You know, we'll find areas that's kind of safer that the AI, even in hallucinations, can't do any real damage. And again, the risk level is lower, and so therefore, the need for control is lower. This is where you or any entrepreneur needs to kind of determine where is that risk and how detrimental can this be? Do you think people, especially entrepreneurs, do you think they're aware of the risks adequately? It's almost like they just see rainbows and unicorns and money right now and they're just throwing the risks out the window. And the problem is as as an entrepreneur, you kind of have to see rainbows and and throw the risk out. I mean, you're, you're trained for that. Like you can't, if, you, if you're starting a company and you, the first thing you think about is all the risks, you're never going to start a company because the risks are always too great. So you have to have that positive outlook to keep moving forward. That said, you need to have that partner in that you're working closely with. You need to have someone that kind of pumps the brakes from time to time and says, the risk line is here. You know, I can tell you at, you know, at Alto, like Will Coleman and myself, like, when he was first interviewing me, he kind of had this grand vision of like, we want to do all these things with Alto. And I said, okay, that's great. What are you going to do when the technology fails? Because there's 50 things in here and all these moving parts. If technology fails at any one of these parts, like what's the backup? And you could see he kind of paused and was like, oh, I didn't think about technology failing. It's like, yeah, I mean, it mostly works. It might work a million times perfectly, but that one time what are we going to do for our customers? Should companies be doing a SWOT analysis comparing what AI can do to what their current services can provide? Last year alone, I saved over a hundred grand using AI instead of hiring other services as a test for the book, because I want to see how far it could go. I mean, we even partially replaced our veterinarian as well as partially replaced an attorney, an immigration attorney. There are things that I, at the time, it's like, I wouldn't have thought in a million years that I could partially replace my veterinarian. I mean, I haven't thought about replacing my veterinarian. I, I have too many dogs and, you know, to, to make yeah. that happen, I'd be too scared. But I mean, this this goes, I, I think it's a great idea for companies to be doing the SWOT analysis. And like I said, if the risk is low, for AI, that even if AI were to mess up, it's it's a real low impact. Like, sure, you can take that risk, but you just got to make sure that where you're implementing AI is safe. I wouldn't, at least right now, we have good systems built up around creating the fair for a customer within an Alta, like how you know how much is someone going to pay for a ride? We have a lot of machine learning. It's got certain constraints and, and rules around it. So I know it's going to work in roughly these ways. I wouldn't 
fully chuck that out and put AI in there that may randomly like set everyone's fares to zero for a whole day because mm-hmm. that's a very risky maneuver. And so this is where like again where your risk tolerance is of where you where you can put it in. So you think we're going to have to head towards a digital identity much like everyone has a passport. We saw I think it was just last week I think CNN reported on this, a Chinese company, one of their employees was on a Zoom call with eight other staff members from, I think, another team. They were all deep fakes and they convinced this employee to hand over $25 million, which to me, it's it's staggering. Like right now, I, I can hopefully tell it's Jonathan that I'm speaking to. But if we look at the graphics and the quality of video in the past year i mean we saw will smith eating spaghetti and it was all mushed in his face but now it's getting more and more lifelike are we going to have to require a digital identity to especially financially keep ourselves safe this is where you start hitting hitting the edges of how much i can dream because i i try to play within the rules and see what how i can set things up I can tell you over the years of working at Alto and seeing the level of ingenuity that fraudsters will will mm. take it's it's impressive and and working back what someone has done and, and making it where they can't do it anymore like that is that is a both fun and hard job what it takes to actually be secure in the in the future world like that's there's going to be some great minds that are going to have to create some some interesting solutions to that and this is one of those places that I think Obviously, since the technology problem, having more tech will help solve it. But is a deep fake boardroom meeting very different than someone sending you a text and saying, "Hey, I need you to wire me over some money." Like, at what point do you say, "Okay, twenty-five million dollars"? Like, let me, let me, yeah, let me double check one more thing. Will send me a text message saying, "I need five gift cards right now, or I'm going to be taken," you know. Some some crazy fraud, you know, at some point you got to just do that logic check and be like, this doesn't make sense. It's interesting that the scammers essentially took advantage of a visual confirmation mm-hmm. of, hey, these all look like my team members. This must be legitimate. What practices or policy do you think companies are going to need to put in place to prevent this happening because this isn't the first time it's happened. I watch this and I marry it up with there are other in as as fast as AI is going and as fast as like generative images are being created, there's also people on the other side creating ways to watermark and find ways to use technology to unscramble and figure out is this image real or fake. And I think those two are going to constantly be in contention with one another and hopefully we just kind of keep up with the 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 check piece as fast as we're keeping it as fast as we're moving forward with the generative piece so that way now there'll be some new zoom or google meet tool or whatever that says like this is a real human not generative ai that you're talking to and it kind of does that check for you it's just it's sad that we have to get there but that's that's where we have to go do you think the watermarks are going to be entirely effective? We've seen recently it's been pretty easy to get around them. I hope because, I mean, if not, 
there's that certain Orwellian moment where you can't trust anything that you see unless Mm. you saw it yourself. And even then, you know, was it real? It's at what point is the world is totally break down because there is no idea of was reality. Which is a scary place to be. Oh, yeah. In terms of navigating in the coming years around artificial intelligence and it's constantly encroaching literally on everything that we do, what most excites you about it? What most excites me is the iterative nature of artificial intelligence and what we, how we can possibly use it within companies. I think we've long known that companies that iterate faster are more successful. And if and on top of that, you marry that up with the idea that with AI, you can ease, you know, quickly iterate and come up with very unique solutions uh, that you weren't able to previously. If we can again, if we can iterate faster as a company using AI to stimulate the world, simulate options respond to those options and just do that faster and faster, we can have much more successful companies, a much more alarming and and hopefully positive rate. What's your take on universal basic income? It's it's something that's come up quite a lot recently, Elon Musk, Sam Altman, because we're seeing, I know Google recently, I think they're redeploying 30,000 employees that have been replaced in their ads division by an AI tool. Do you think this is creeping up on employees faster than what they can comprehend? And do you suspect we may need something like UBI in the future? I got to be careful because I grew up watching Star Trek with my dad where the future includes no money and we're all just working to make a better society together. I got to be careful not to let the total science fiction in, (laughs) but I mean, I do think that it is a concern for years as a software engineer, I could basically write my own ticket almost anywhere and I'm watching the writing on the walls. And nowadays wondering, is that a good role to recommend people now getting into their career to go into? You know, is as an engineer, we solve in front of you. People that are building these tools are also engineers, so they're going to solve more engineering problems and therefore work engineers out of work faster. That's going to accelerate so much faster. Um, so it is a concern of mine of at what point have we put so many people out of work and then what is the purpose of of living? Like what's what are we trying to do as a society? Are the engineers almost speeding up their own displacement? Are, oh, they, yeah. are they aware of that? Because that, to me, I tend to think one year, two, three years ahead, think, all right, what is what is this building up to? Are they having any pause to go, I'm effectively going to replace myself here? I mean, I got to imagine that there's very intelligent people working on these problems and they're saying the same thing. Like they can't be uniquely blind to it. They're probably still so interested in look at the problems I'm solving and look what I'm able to do. But you very likely could quickly work your way out of a, out of, out of a job. Let's you know, take one example that I don't think is, is so far fetched. Uh, engineer sits and writes a amazing Android application and then takes a zip file of everything that they've built 
uploads it and says, now make me an iOS application that does exact, looks exactly the same and works exactly the same with no bugs. That typically would be a whole other team of people. And now the program says, okay, I can translate this into that. Done. Here's your other application. Just if you think about that, I like think of how many people just were displaced in that one example. And no longer will take a village to build a company anymore. I think Sam Altman said the other day that it could, one person could build a billion dollar company using AI. Yeah. And that's, that's very true. I mean, but you have to imagine that this is the march of humanity. I mean, you don't see a lot of people saying that, cool, I need to start a business. Now I need to go hire a full of typists anymore. I need to go. It's just, there, there are, there are, there is displacement and new creations will come in their stead. What's your take on companies training AI on their employees' work? Because I would only imagine in the case of Google and the 30,000 workers that probably without being aware of it, they actively train the AI that's now replaced them. Are you have any kind of inclination that within the next couple of years, we're going to see more employee rights to go, all right, here's, here's the line in terms of using that employee data to train an AI that will then replace them. I mean, I, I, I 100% think that that's going to be coming up more. And we saw that recently with, you know, actors and voice acting. Yeah. Where, you know, they're trying to say, like, this is my voice. You can't use this without my permission. And I 100% agree and, and stand behind that because I do believe that, you know, it does, it does make someone unique. However, as an engineer, if I'm writing code for a company, I mean, the company owns that code. That's the whole point. Like, you're making that trade-off for a paycheck. As long as the company is using the code that they own, like, that's... That is kind of their property to do with what they please. So people have to be more aware of that walking into it. I, I think so. I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's just, it's kind of their property. I will say it's, it is scary. Like you're feeding the beast that will eventually replace you, but you can't just stop. You can't just take your hands off the keyboard and say, I'm not working anymore. But you also can't say to a company like that, owns this code that you can't use it like like at what point do you there's only there's only so many rules before you can't make a solution that works only 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 so many constraints you can put on the system well it's certainly not set up to favor employees by any means is it oh yeah one thing i've seen there was a company overseas i think it was called alt brain inc where they've started, supposedly they've started training AI chatbots on the employees, and then they're actually paying the employees based on the work that the chatbot is doing. Could you see a marketplace for that in the future? That is interesting. But at what point does the work that though may be based on someone's development has morphed enough that it's not really their work. I mean, sure, I would love to get paid forever off of code that I wrote 10 years ago because it was put into some bot and is still producing code. 
but at some point that can't be successful like as a company i can't just keep paying people forever like that's kind of the antithesis to automating as much stuff as we are and it's probably usefulness is going to degrade over time as well yeah what's the number one question that i haven't asked you that you think that i should ask you I think the biggest problem is always the ethical one. It's not whether we could do something, but whether we should do something. And I think there's going to be a lot of companies that are coming up and out these days that are going to, there'll be that niche company that says, I have inserted AI into this. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to like grit their teeth and be like, that is one place AI does not belong. Scheduling people for heart surgery. At what point does the AI start saying, I'm not going to schedule this person because this other one over here is more valuable or has a higher likelihood of success? Those ethical things that a computer just shouldn't be making those decisions. I really appreciate you diving into those aspects because I feel like researching this book, I've almost been shouting at a wall. (laughs) <laughs> with some of the the ethical concerns especially around employment and i've interviewed techno optimists which has been fascinating but i i love to get the different points of view jonathan thank you so much for your time i could keep talking to you all day about this stuff i agree this has been a lot of fun and it just it's been it's been a great afternoon learn more about jonathan campos and alto at RideAlto.com and if you haven't already, subscribe to Beyond Unstoppable and visit TheWolfOfAI.co to order your copy of The Wolf is at the Door. And stay tuned for next week's episode.